0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Dr. Scott.
1: Welcome. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Thanks for joining us. Today, I have David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're going to talk about a topic that may have been covered in other um Episodes, But today I think it's particularly relevant as we are coming upon our summer of um, fun, hopefully safe and sober fun for everyone. But certainly we know as the holidays come around, in the summertime in particular, these are really risky times for our patients with the disease of addiction. And many of you may be aware of the statistics around relapse. Uh, people who are in good recovery, even with the best of efforts, somewhere between forty and sixty percent of people will relapse at some point during their um, during their lifetime in recovery. Now, this is a frightening statistic, and one that I think we try very hard to do a lot of work around to make sure that people are aware of this and aware of the the idea that even if you have relapsed, that does not mean that you failed. That doesn't mean that there's no hope or that you can't um, do well in recovery. That's not what it means at all. But what it does mean is that you need to get right back into your recovery plan and do the work that you need to do to stay safe and safe. Stay safe and sober. So today we're going to discuss a number of things that have been shown to put people um, at particular risk for relapse. And David Donaldson, who is the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center, is with me today. And we're um, we've been discussing this very interesting article that came from Karen uh, Treatment Centers. Um, David.
2: Hi, Susan. I'm so glad to be here today. I um, <clears throat> I find that the, the discussion of relapses is, is crucially important. There's such a, a message out there in the community that relapse is a part of recovery, and, and I cringe when I hear that. I want to want to challenge that thought every time I have the opportunity because it really is not a part of recovery. It's, it's more a part of the disease. Relapse is a part of the disease of addiction. So if somebody has a relapse, there's... They've, they've either continued the relapse, as, as it talks about in the, the article from Karen, with um, an addiction interaction, where, where somebody's got more than one addiction, that they tend to go back and forth between um, um, keeping either the drug addiction or an addiction related to relationships or an addiction related to gambling, and they'll have abstinence from one or the other at a given time, but... They don't have complete abstinence, and so they're keeping that reward pathway going. Or it can be a situation where they've just kind of gone back into disease by not taking care of their recovery, by settling back into old patterns or hanging out with old situations that just reactivated the disease process. Um, so, again, not the recovery process, but the disease process leading them back into that, that pathway.
1: And it's these pathways, unfortunately, that have been (laughs) laid down in, as we talk about, steel cable, where people have had a thought, a feeling, a situation in their life, and their automatic response becomes um, to use in order to change that thought or feeling. And that's the... That's the go-to, that's the automatic, and the work of recovery is to undo that to some degree or another and to lay down other pathways of other options to do when you are feeling a certain way or having thoughts in a certain way that unfortunately make you think about using Using doesn't have to be the one and only option, although for many of our patients, especially early in recovery, that's the only option they've known for so very long. And that's um, learning new learning new things and learning new coping skills is how we put down new pathways and how we and I'm talking about literally pathways or networks in the brain this is a a literal phenomenon not just a theoretical one but you are um, we we talk about uh, in neuroscience the idea that neurons that fire together wire together so the more neurons are in contact with each other, responding in, um, in a continuous way, the more likely they are to become the default pathway or the way that the person automatically responds. And that's how we build a lot of real important um, things called habits that help simplify our life. But when it becomes, if I feel this way and now I need to use drugs, that is a pathway or a network that we need to break.
2: Yeah, the um, the the image of that network um, is is becoming more and more real. When when I was initially in the field and, and and training, the way it was, one of the people described it was being at your house and and. Um, You have things that are in your kitchen that you go to all the time and you know exactly where they are and you don't have a single thought about where you go. You just go to this one cabinet, you open it and you get the dish or the glass and that pathway between, um, say, your lunch table or your dinner table and the cabinet is very well-worn and that is well-established and requires no thoughts at all. And then you have some other um, things that you don't use quite as frequently uh, that might be in your living room and some things that are even less frequent down in your basement. Um, And so those pathways aren't as strong and you might have to think to remind yourself of where those things are at. But what's so interesting with addiction is there are a lot of things that that early on in the addiction process got very connected to the addiction and you may have stored them in the basement thinking, okay, well, this is part of my past and not something I need to worry about. Um, But something may come along that suddenly just highlights the, and puts a, a, a light path guiding you directly to where that is. Um, we talk about things that in, in your early using period, when somebody is really enjoying the, the, the drug or the behavior that they're using, the things that are getting associated at that time get just hardwired. Um, and so the pathway to where that is at, even if you haven't thought about it in a long time, can, can be like you were saying a still still wire
1: and unfortunately drugs um, and behaviors that release dopamine a reward center are the ones that are reinforced the most strongly that release of that important neurochemical that chemical messenger dopamine is so powerful and it is such a well-known reward to our brain it's well-known reward to our body we understand that feeling and it's there for our protection it's there to help us keep doing the things we need to do to be alive and to continue the species it's a powerful motivator powerful motivator and the 30 odd um Categories of substances that release that trigger or that dopamine, um, it's pretty limited. When you think about the millions of molecules in this earth, only about 30 different categories will release dopamine. And that memory of that, even a small, minuscule, minuscule exposure to either the chemical that's your favorite, or the um, another chemical that releases a similar um, ty- um, amount of dopamine, suddenly it, it's all back on. And as you say, David, the lights come on. You know, the uh, the flashing <laughs> direction signals go on, and you know exactly where to go. You're you're right back in. Um, in full craving and in full relapse mode because this does not take uh, a thinking. You don't have to remember. It just becomes so automatic. And people call this sometimes euphoric recall. This, oh, it was so great. It was so wonderful. I remember it. I want it. And more than I want it, I need it. I need to have this. I need to have this experience, and I need to have this feeling back again. And unfortunately, your brain remembers all too clearly what can activate <laughs> that that system for you um, very quickly. And interestingly, and in this um, study that was um, done at Care and Treatment Center is about a. An, a regular behavior, um, which is um, having sex. Now, sex is what we need to do to continue the species, and our brains are wired to release an amount of dopamine that gives us the pleasure, the happiness, the good feeling um, that you have. And unfortunately, um, this creates some difficulty for people, and as they did in this study um, at Karen found that a lot of folks with um, addiction also may have some problems with sex.
2: So this was a closed study where, where they were um, actually working with care and patients and giving them the evaluation, um, the SAST-R sexual addiction screening tool, and it looks like we're going to have to come back um, and talk further about that more at another time. But what was so interesting here was not only did it recognize that many of the people that were there for alcohol dependency um, actually had some issues related to sex. Uh, 21% of the people that that took the test of the 485 participants scored as having a problem with sexual issues as well as their substance abuse. But the part that really grabbed my um, attention was the different aspects of that disease. So when we get back... We'll, we'll go into those two aspects.
1: So please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
3: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2.
4: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center and I have been talking about uh, relapse and relapse triggers. And right before the break, David, you were explaining a little bit about this study that was done at Karen Treatment Centers up in Pennsylvania involving Patrick Karn's um, sexual uh, addiction screening test and our screening tool and that a number of the individuals that were tested in fact did you say 21% mm-hmm.
2: um, 21% of the 485 participants had a positive result indicating some sort of problem with sexual issues
1: and you were going to um, talk a little bit more about Some of the specifics related to that.
2: Well, so part of what it was really looking at was was a phenomenon known as addiction replacement, where an individual may have an addiction to alcohol or an addiction to drugs, and they've gone into a treatment program and they've done the steps to get off of alcohol, um, but then when they get out, they replace because they're still in that that pattern of seeking the dopamine rewards. They'll replace it with gambling, or with sexual behaviors, or with um, um, jumping into various relationships to continue to get that. Continue seeking either relief or to seek pleasure. But they're doing one of they're doing something to continue getting that, um, rather than stopping and learning how to deal with life on life's terms. And then the other is that they recognize was an addiction fusion where. Two different um, addictive processes will fuse together and, and um, continue to wire each other the way you had said that um, the pathways that fire together wire together. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so people will get linked drinking and sexual behaviors, or um, what we regularly will see is, is people will get linked with alcohol plus cocaine plus sexual behaviors um, and that sort of situation where a number of different addictions are all coming together to to increase um, the desired effect um, and and having um, an increase in terms of tolerance for all of those things and also an increase in consequences.
1: And unfortunately with many of these folks, if you don't recognize that there is this fusion and that you have to address all of those things, not as, oh, you're using a relationship or sex as a a way to distract yourself or a way to self-soothe, but that actually um, the intimate behavior is triggering your desire to also add the drugs. If you don't address that and you don't recognize that, that's going to create a huge relapse potential. Now, not everyone uses it in that way, and for some people it's the relationships or the sex itself that becomes um, another way to get dopamine and and that they're not fused together. Um, A common scenario that we see to kind of illustrate... um, what happens, we're seeing more and more older folks, and by older I mean over the age of 30, 40. (laughs) Um, Older is relative nowadays. Um,
2: And getting more relative every day. Every
1: day. Um, But that may be um, engaged in in sex with um, uh, prostitutes and these um, situations result in that person getting exposed to a drug that they may have never used before, may have never considered using, such as cocaine or methamphetamine. And um, it it is that joining those two behaviors together that then creates what we're, we're sometimes seeing in folks, which is a later onset of addiction to the stimulants that had not been part of their life before and had not been part of um, even a scenario that they could have imagined but
2: and often it's it's discounted as somebody is going through a midlife crisis or they're going through a life change and just change and just doing some wild and crazy behaviors when when in actuality they have acquired um, a, a very serious disease and and it's heartbreaking to to watch people in that category really struggle to try and get clean and and have the full knowledge that they are destroying themselves and yet still compulsively acting out in both areas.
1: This one um, has a trajectory that travels pretty quickly from um, onset to disaster, You know. Sometimes people can um, be using alcohol, for example, or pot or some other drugs for a long period of time without necessarily getting severe consequences. But when you add the stimulants like cocaine, like methamphetamine, it becomes a real rapid decline often into now they're losing their business, now they're losing their family, they're spending tremendous amounts of money, they are exposing themselves to very dangerous health risks. Lots of things go bad really quickly. And, again, this is something that has to be treated jointly. People need to have both of these um, uh addictions. I mean, addiction is one thing. Addiction is a brain disease. The problem is the brain, not the behavior. But recognizing that one thing or the other thing are are going to now trigger the desire to continue to use drugs and to act out. And this is very dangerous, and we're seeing it more commonly.
2: And for me, part of what really increased the urgency of this topic was that some of the some of the areas that will um, activate dopamine and are definitely a part of the addictive process are areas that people have got to learn how to manage. Unlike um, alcohol and drug addiction, um, where abstinence is the first and foremost key model, with some of these things, people have got to learn to manage. And and so, for example, um, working with a client that has significant food issues, um, and in the past, they've been able to manage their food issues by amphetamines. Now that amphetamines are out of the picture, the trauma that, that th- these people will experience with not having any clue how to manage food issues and how to, how to prepare a meal or judge a meal or judge portion size or, or judge appropriate exercise um, is, is traumatic. Um, and, and trying to help them manage both recoveries and actually recognize that it's one recovery Um, because there's there's not really a lot of places where they can talk to um, people about this as one recovery. They'll often walk out and and they'll have five different baskets of meetings they should be going to in different readings, and all the readings are the same basic information about addiction just coming from another angle, but the person is left confused thinking that they they have to become schizophrenic in order to recover.
1: And that's um, certainly not the case and not our desire for folks, Um, but understanding that this is really like playing the whack-a-mole game where you get one down and another one is going to pop up. And the difficulty, as you're mentioning, David, with um, some of the behaviors that can be addictive like um, sugar or um, exercise or having intimate relationships Uh, The problem is that you can avoid alcohol. You don't have to ever taste alcohol again in your life. You don't ever have to um, use cocaine again ever in your life. But one of the difficulties is you have to eat, and you have to eat every day, and your body requires fuel, and you have natural um, need for these things. And just the mere fact that you're getting hungry or that you're thinking about food can be a trigger. The the fact that you're in an intimate relationship and you want to have um, an expression of that with your with your partner, with your loved one now it triggers other things for you and so defining what is abstinence or what is management as you said a moment ago when am I eating to fuel my body when am I engaging in relations with my uh, my loved one because that helps us be close and be intimate and enjoy one another and when am I doing it to mood alter or escape or when is it destructive? It's a very difficult um,
2: or even manage. or even more um, difficult for the person is when those things have become fused. So a person's in um, a committed relationship and they're growing and caring and they want to increase the intimacy, but this just doesn't work without um, without cocaine or without the drugs being a part of it, because the, the sexual act and the cocaine have become so fused that, um, or for some people, the pornography and the sexual act have become so, so fused that they're not able to function without that. Um, finding healing and being able to recognize that this is part of what happened in the disease process, and it's going to take time and patience and the right therapist to help you heal with that.
1: And it's going to, um, in that particular um, situation, is going to also take very close support of your your spouse or your significant other, your partner. They're going to have to understand that. The intimate relationship may need to change, that there may need to be some new ways in which um, affection is shared, and that the rebuilding of trust is going to take some time on both of their parts. So it, it, it requires a, um, a good therapist and a willing <laughs> partner who is um, going to be able to set aside their own not set aside, but learn to deal with their own fears and concerns and anger to be able to help you as a patient be, you know, back to normal relations.
2: One of the dynamics that we've seen at the Atlanta Healing Center is that because we're addressing addiction from so many different facets, from from the mind-brain disease, from the social aspects, but also the impact of the disease on the body and the hormonal system, we're already talking about um, the body we're already talking about hormones we're already talking about foods people eat and and how they're interacting so it's becoming a very natural conversation for people to to address these which um i i found absolutely refreshing um in the sense that in so many areas in my past those things would be automatically referred out or, or automatically disconnected to a Another situation, it's becoming a natural thing to talk about and address in our center.
1: And to be able to help people have these discussions and to feel safe in doing them and also to provide people with real practical advice and direction to help them to regain not only their um, recovery from. Substances, but also their recovery from behaviors. Very difficult. When we come back, we're going to talk about some other things that may be triggers besides intimate relationships or food. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back.
4: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.atlantahealingcenter.com. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Rinaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com.
0: This is AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Coming soon, only on AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. The Insurance Deal.
1: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and David Donaldson is here with me from the Atlanta Healing Center. We're talking about a number of things that can be triggering for folks to make them at more risk for the... um, possibility, not the probability, and David, I heard you very clearly, not the probability that there will relapse, but the possibility that they could relapse. And this is, of course, um, something that everyone is vulnerable to, regardless of how long they've been in recovery, regardless of how smart they are or um, what treatment center they went to. So people need to be aware of these things, not be afraid, but be aware and recognize that there are some predictable situations that people need to plan ahead for and need to make um, in their minds, bring a a level of um, consciousness to and make preparations to avoid the possibility of a relapse. So July fourth.
2: <laughs> I think of that in particular because one of the one of the big relapse triggers for people is reminiscing. When when people are at treatment centers, often they'll go outside to have a cigarette. And while they're out there they'll be talking about the good old days um, or when they're when they're just hanging around at a, outside of a meeting they'll often find themselves just talking about the good old days and in, in the in the recovery world we call we call those telling war stories um, but what they're doing is is reminiscing and connecting and there's nothing like holidays, especially the Fourth of July <laughs> to just take you back to reminiscing um, on on all the good old days when when um <clears throat> alcohol was a big part of the celebration. Um, and we, we certainly have stories of the 4th of July where alcohol made it very miserable and, and scary, but but there were also times where it just added to it. Um, and so those programs... They get programmed in there. Of this is to celebrate the Fourth. You and here in Atlanta, you get up early. You go down. You either run the Peach Tree or you watch people run the Peach Tree. And the last group of runners are doing a pub crawl up up Peach Tree Street, and, and so that's just the kickoff of a, a day of drinking for for many many people. And the 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 drooling and the cravings will start setting in. The, um, The day before, two days before, just the idea of the Fourth of July is coming, Mm -hmm. the, the triggers are already beginning to fire.
1: Um, I always have to smile, David, because I hear you say things like, um, the 4th of July is a time that people that don't even drink will drink or that don't get, usually get drunk will get drunk. And, and that's really true. This is one, when we have holidays that are not necessarily family um, holidays, like Thanksgiving or Christmas or Hanukkah, those kinds of holidays where the idea is you're going to be with your family and, yes, those can deteriorate rapidly. But for the most part, those aren't usually the the high danger, at least not from uh, reminiscing. Um, But the the holidays that are associated with um, the use of alcohol, like St. Patrick's Day, like Cinco de Mayo, like Fourth of July, new year's eve new year's eve
2: the ones that are designed to be a celebration that we are going to have this big old party and celebrate the birth of our nation or the independence of our nation um and we're going to have fireworks and it's going to be all these flashing lights and um all these smells of uh, barbecues and watermelon and all these different cues that are all getting triggered our our stomachs are getting triggered, our noses are getting triggered, our visual eyes are getting triggered with with all of these things, and with all of those things is also the trigger to um, to drink beer um, and to to party.
1: And those are for many people wired in. Those are the automatic. Oh, Fourth of July, I'm going to go have a party. We're going to the lake. We're going to be um, drinking and partying. So there's two aspects of that. One is for folks in recovery, the need to be careful around the exposure, where here is going to be a party where there will be a lot of alcohol, where people may be smoking pot, where people may be doing other drugs. So there's that part of it. But there's also... Um, this glamorization, this euphoric recall um, of my past experience with this holiday that is also setting me up. And then in some cases, it's the people that you will be with. If this is a stressful situation, if you're not 100% one hundred percent excited about being with your in-laws for the holiday, for example, um, and there's some um, emotional pressure around that. Then one of the ways that people often relieve their pressure, or the automatic re- thought is, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna use." So there's several ways in which these kinds of holidays can be potentially dangerous for people, and um, and folks need to be prepared and think about the different ways in which they can be triggered on the fourth of july or other such holidays
2: so one of the ones that you were just talking about with being around in-laws and being around family is the word stress yes Um, and i often tell people there's there's just not a better substance out there for stopping stress at least early in life than marijuana um... and so there will, there will be often people talking about, I just started having cravings for pot. And, you know, pot didn't get me here. Pot wasn't my drug of choice. I really didn't like it. It just made me paranoid. But I was stressed out. And my boss kept yelling at me, and all I was thinking about was pot. So one of those triggers that just comes out of the blue, mm-hmm. um, whether it's a holiday or not, um, poor, poor pot.
1: And... Again, those pathways are hardwired and it becomes a default. There are other kinds of situations that um, can also trigger stress um, and the stress response and the desire, and one of those is having a physical or a mental illness, being depressed, being anxious, being in pain, um, being isolated because you are at home recuperating from surgery on your knee, those kinds of um, situations that are very stressful for everyone, not just people in recovery, but for everyone, these kinds of physical and mental um, illnesses can create, again, another trigger or at least the thoughts that you might want to use drugs or alcohol.
2: To medicate those feelings. What's so interesting about depression um, and sadness is that when we look at warning signs and triggers, uh, there, was a, a, there is a guy named, named Terence Gorski who's just done phenomenal research around the, the things that lead people back into using and relapsing into their, fact, their diseases. And, and one of the sections that he really talks about is becoming isolated and depressed. But we, what we also know is that when people are beginning the recovery process, and when they're really going through the acceptance of all the things that the addiction has taken from them and of all the losses as well as all the changes, they're going to go through depression. So, so people can have a real difficult time, um, in, and they're triggered in both, both scenarios, whether it's depression because they're early in recovery and they're realizing all the losses or whether it's depression that's coming because they're becoming isolated later on in recovery. Depression still in and of itself becomes a trigger. And it's one that doctors are so apt to just want to fix. (laughs) patient comes in and says, I can't sleep and I'm depressed and nothing makes me happy. And and many, many doctors will throw pills at the situation Mm -hmm. rather than sit down and say, okay, we need to talk about what's going on.
1: And people do need to grieve for the loss of their former best friend. Um, They need to learn and have the opportunity to grieve that alcohol used to really help me. Then it turned on me. Now it's become a problem, but I'm going to really miss it. And sometimes they need to be able to say those words and they need to talk about um, the, the early gifts that alcohol gave them and, and understand that that is a loss for them. And that can sometimes be part of the depression that we see in early recovery. Or the anxiety that we see in early recovery, often associated to the physical absence of the substance itself. They don't necessarily have to have an anxiety disorder. And again, They go in and they tell their primary care doctor, I'm having anxiety, and then they might find themselves on a a, a new path of a new drug that they might be addicted to. But the anxiety, the agitation, the restlessness, the not being able to sleep, these are often symptoms that are seen in early recovery as part of withdrawal or opposed acute withdrawal. And some of these may need to have some medication and support. Some of them need to just be normalized, and people need to understand what's happening to them so they're not so afraid. And, again, the warning about, and don't let this lead you back out to medicate those feelings.
2: Um, as you were talking about that, and you mentioned the loss of their best friend, alcohol or drugs or whatever their addiction was, Real often they're also mourning the loss of their real best friend, the actual living person, who's choosing to continue to drink or use, Mm -hmm. rather than to leave that alone so they can spend time and hang out with you. Because many people think, well, I'll be fine, this person cares about me so much, we've known each other since we were in grade school, they won't drink around me, they won't tempt me, we'll still have a fun time together, and that person's not there for them um and and what can be a real big trigger is if they've just kind of accepted okay that person's not there for me and they're walking down the street or they're walking through a grocery store and there that person is and they're shocked by the sight of that person they don't know how to speak or communicate or deal with that person and then they speak and the person says hey what's up hey let's go have a drink and they just they just fold
1: and This is so hard for many people to recognize that they may have to give up their best friend, the substance or the behavior, and and their people and the friends that are around them. A big mistake people often make is assuming that I've got this, I'm solid in my recovery, I have all my skills, so I can go back and hang out with my friends. I can go back and hang out with the people that I used to use with, and and I'm not ever going to drink or use again. I'm going to be able to manage this just fine, not recognizing "Mm, there's too many familiar pathways in their brain that have been hardwired in relationship to being with those people in those places doing those things.
2: And that phrase, I got this, is always a setup. If they're saying, I got this, then they're already walking down that pathway.
1: And they don't got it. So when we come back, we're going to talk about a few other triggers and some ways in which people can prepare safely for the holiday. Please stay tuned.
3: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com.
0: Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear The Doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m.
4: With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. David Donaldson is helping me today. as We're talking about relapse triggers and some of the dangers that may be out there for folks as they're trying to negotiate summer as they're trying to negotiate the holidays, as they're trying to negotiate life in early or even late stages of recovery. People often think about relapse as happening um, as a result of stress, and that certainly does happen. Uh, People are often really alert to feeling lonely or sad, having bad um, or Serious events happen in their life that um, cause grief and, and generate a lot of negative feelings. But what is often surprising, particularly to family members, is that it's not just the, the gloom and doom and um, I've lost my job and my girlfriend broke up with me and my dog ran away kinds of situations that create um, a relapse risk, but it's happy times, and it's celebrations, and that's where these kinds of things, like the Fourth of July holiday, can uh, create a scenario where many people, that's their preferred time to use.
2: I was just reading through one of the um, checklists that we'll work with with patients um, on triggers, and and. Most of the things on the checklist are actually happy times or, or celebration times. I feel like I, sh- I want to just kind of read through some of Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Um, just so you kind of get a feel for it. This is a, a checklist of, of potential external triggers, and it wants you to identify the ones that could be a setup for you so you can plan ahead of time. Um, so being home alone, being home with friends, being in friends' homes, partying, sporting events, movies, bars, nightclubs, beaches, concerts. Friends who use drugs, gaining weight, vacations and holidays, when it's raining, um, before a date, during a date, after a date, before sexual activity, during sexual activity, after sexual activity, before work, when carrying money, um, going past a dealer's residence, going past a liquor store, driving at all, um, during work, um, when talking on the phone, when attending a recovery group, after payday, before going out to dinner, before going to a party, before breakfast, at lunch, while at dinner, after work, after passing particular street signs um, during school, at the park, in the neighborhood, um, on weekends, especially Fridays, um, when you're with family members or when you're in pain. And to that list, we can also add the entire state of Florida. Um, (laughs) We can add the city of New Orleans, the city of New York. There are just particular places that...
1: Las Vegas, <laughs> Las
2: Vegas, that are associated with drinking and using, and it's programmed in. I think into our national consciousness.
1: Absolutely, and I was just thinking of how many of those situations are difficult to avoid. Driving, I think, of before people, particularly those that are trying to stop smoking. Um, before breakfast, after breakfast, um, before lunch, after lunch, while driving, while talking on the phone. Many of these things uh, can apply to all kinds of um, addictions, but uh, tobacco came to mind because I often hear people, well, I always smoke when I drive. I always smoke when I talk on the phone. I'm always smoking when I after a meal. And so... Everyday situations, positive situations, negative situations, boring situations, exciting situations, scary situations—you name it, it can be. Um, it can be a reason. And I, I once saw a calendar that was 365 reasons to. Um, to use and uh, one of them was, it's Viking Helmet Polishing Day. Uh,
2: <laughs> it's, and of It's, course.
1: it's Tuesday. Um, it rained today. It didn't rain today.
2: Because who's ever heard of pe- polishing your helmet without something in your system?
1: Exactly, exactly. That would just be wrong on so many levels. And you know, this is one of the realities that I think so many of our folks in early recovery are faced with, that so much of their life how they spent their time how they spent their money who they spent their time and money with um, what thoughts they had during the day what plans they had to make all of these things took up huge amounts of their time and are now logged in in their brain as oh when i do this i use and it's it's can be extremely difficult because it really is a reworking of your thinking as well as your lifestyle.
2: One of the characters from Saturday Night Live was talking about having just recently come back from treatment, Um, and this character was saying, I never knew there were 24 hours in a day. (laughs) And he went on to talk about how days are so long, how do people get through all of these hours. Um, And then he described things he did to get through it, but we can't go into. But (laughs) the the reality for many addicts, because drugs took so much time, um, that they have no tolerance for dealing with boredom, and they have no tolerance for dealing with downtime. Both of those are are, are messages that they need to be doing something, and their brain says drugs.
1: Absolutely. A lot of times folks will say, if I'm having a craving, I'll watch TV. I'll distract with TV. And on the surface, that sounds like um, a really good plan. You know, go sit down and turn on a a show that's interesting or funny or captivating in some way. But this is a problem. People get into this mindless state, which can often be very reminiscent of what things were like when they were using and can actually be a trigger in and of itself.
2: You you think of the... um the just obvious trigger of television, where you're seeing commercials or you're seeing people drinking or using on the t- on the screen, okay. but but the point that you brought up is is actually even more crucial: the the becoming isolated and becoming mindless and becoming um, you get into a state of depression, vegetating on a couch. Now, I, I will suggest to people when they're in. Withdrawal, and they're trying to get through those first few days of withdrawal to pull the covers over their head and stay in bed and watch TV for that period of time um, to survive withdrawal. But after that, getting up and coming to group and going to meetings and, and beginning to fill up those 24 hours, crucial
1: and with new activities that they haven't been doing while using. So in our last few minutes, I was hoping that we might be able to talk about some of the ways that people can really prepare themselves and um, ensure their safety, particularly over um, long holiday weekends and um, difficult times when the expectation is everybody's partying.
4: Um, so
2: I think, number one, it's important to to remind people that just because you have a trigger doesn't mean you have a relapse. Thank you. It's, it's very, very crucial um, because there are many people in early recovery who do not have the experience of not using when they've had a trigger, um, especially when it's cocaine or crystal meth and the, the trigger feels so overpoweringly strong so just because they've had a trigger doesn't mean they've had a relapse it doesn't mean they're not working a program it just means that there are some things that have been hardwired that we're going to have to take a chainsaw to to get that that wiring (laughs) severed a little bit um the other piece that i really emphasize is they cannot go through it alone unless they're setting up a relapse They need to be making plans with other people that that are in recovery or people that know what's going on with them, that they're comfortable um, being able to just be present with, um, people they can talk to if they need to, or people they can just be present with without having to talk. Um, Because if they're trying to go it alone, they're they're setting themselves up for, for using.
1: Because addiction thrives in isolation. It thrives. Um, with secrets and with people avoiding situations and other people, and we're trying to help them do just the opposite, which is be out, be active, and do it in a safe way.
2: The hard wiring is to use. Um, so if there's not some barriers in there, other people that are active barriers to the using, and, and you're alone with, with your own brain, then... Um, Um, You're in in a dangerous place.
1: Yeah, don't go in there alone. (laughs) So there are some other things that I think can be really helpful, and one is, um, and we talk about this often, is the escape plan, making sure that if you're going to be at an activity and you're not sure all who's going to be there or whether drugs or alcohol are going to be part of the menu and venue, make sure that you have a way to get home that doesn't have to be Involve um, a lot of hoopla or a lot of drama that you can quietly excuse yourself and and find a way home to a safe place. If um, alcohol or drugs are part of where you're going to be, or stress is going to be there.
2: And then the other thing is to to have um, a plan for the next day, because many people have the experience of just white-knuckling it, surviving through the holiday or surviving through the stressful event or surviving through the concert, only to find themselves um, in a drinking situation the next day when they're alone and when the cravings hit real hard. So uh, having your recovery plan in place for the next day, knowing what meetings you're going to go to, what group you're going to go to, having some appointments scheduled will help lower the stress of the day itself, but also help get you back in back in focus with your recovery program.
1: And have a group of people that you can reach out to if you're having cravings, so that you don't have to give a long explanation or um, have people who are in recovery have your sponsor, have other friends in recovery that you can call and talk what's happening for you and make sure that it's going to be okay and because saying it and talking about it and saying your feelings out loud actually move those thoughts and feelings to the front of your brain where you can make good decisions and choices if you leave them spinning around in the nonverbal part of your brain you're you're going to act on them nine times out of ten
2: So part of what we're doing at the Atlanta Healing Center is is actually reprogramming. Um, So so they're not not encouraged to just ignore the craving until it's going to go away, because, I mean, it it may go away eventually, but it's going to be a long, long time. But if they're actively doing something different, so if they're making plans with recovering people and they're going out and they're learning that they can play volleyball and not have beer, or if they're learning they can enjoy grilling without beer I mean everything associated with the Fourth of July is is beer and so when they discover that they can have a fun exciting Fourth of July without beer they've made a huge recovery discovery Um, and then they're able to come back and process it with with group or or in one of their sessions and they're building new pathways towards Mm -hmm. um, recovery that are replacing the the pathways towards cravings (laughs)
1: And this is um, a very important thing that um, we remember. We've got to get new neurons to fire together and wire together. And that having fun is an important part of recovery. And it is very possible to have good, safe, sober fun. And we do really hope that you will have a safe and sober and fun Fourth of July. We'll see you next week on Detailing Addiction.